slowly plod our way through this wonderful book, Titus chapter 2. There's a man by the name of James Buckley, lived in the 1800s, had some kind of connection to local churches, and a local church in the area asked him to come and run a a testimony meeting, uh, kind of reflecting on what God was at work to do in the church. And so he stood before the congregation, he was prodding them along to bear witness to what God had been doing at work in their lives, and one lady rose and testified of the preciousness of her faith, and she expressed how God had brought light into her life and comfort to her heart through her belief and faith in the Lord. And as Dr. Buckley listened to her speak this, he was concerned to press her to the practical, and so he, uh, in prodding her along, said, that's great, sister. But how about the practical side? Does your religion make you strive to prepare your husband a good dinner? Does it make you look after him in every way? Just then, as he was saying that, Dr. Buckley felt a tug on his coattails by the pastor of the church who was sitting just behind him. And as he tugged on his coat, he he whispered in his ear, he said, press those questions, doctor, press those questions. That's my wife. (laughs) That's getting uh, practical and personal all in one fell swoop as a a leader of a service in a sister church. And we, if we're honest, we all love it when other people's sanctification directly benefits us. That when their following of the Lord produces some good thing that we enjoy in their life and in our life because of our relationship to them. The text before us tonight, however, presses those questions upon us, upon our heart. How is it that God's transforming grace is at work in us? And so, like Dr. Buckley to that woman, this text presses questions upon your soul. We parachute into this text tonight in Titus 2. We've slowly been working our way through as we've had opportunity through this tremendous letter. It's uh, easily one of my favorite texts in the New Testament because it's from an aging Paul to his young child in the faith, likely at least two to three decades younger than he is, who's just starting out in ministry Uh, who is uh, young and wet behind the ears and yet so full of desire, obviously, to serve the Lord in this way. And so as Paul addresses Titus, he addresses him about how he is to put things into order in the churches on the island of Crete. Namely, in chapter 1, we learn he's supposed to appoint elders in every one of those local churches and Uh, He gave them a very clear description of what those elders are to look like and what they are to do and who they are to counter. That was in chapter 1. As we walked through chapter 1, we saw that the the Cretan people themselves are are not high society type people. Uh, These are not the cream of the crap of the Roman Empire. These are, uh, as their own poet called them, they are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. How would you like that to be? the epitaph for our society, which maybe it is at this point, but uh, the Cretan people were not high society types. And into that darkness of, of moral depravity, which had produced that kind of societal behavior, the gospel light had come and, and shone gloriously and had shown such a great light that now these people who were not God's people could be called God's people, and not just in name, but in lives transformed by God's amazing and saving grace. And that really is the theme of this little letter. We're going to come next time we're together to the nucleus of the letter, verses 11 to 14 of chapter 2. It's a tremendous text, one that should be preached regularly. 
within the, the confines of the local church because it, it just hits at the nucleus of what God is doing in saving us and in sanctifying us. And Paul is trying to make clear to Titus, listen, this saving grace that rescues you from hell does not leave you alone. God enrolls you in a schoolhouse of grace. If he saves you from your sin and he sanctifies you in Christ, then he works that out in your life all through the rest of your days. And so this transforming, sanctifying grace is always at work in every part of the believer's lives. And Paul's point in the first part of chapter 2 is that that should be noticeable to others. That sound doctrine should be producing a lifestyle that matches our message, which then in turn magnifies the message. Now, this is ABC 101 Christianity type stuff. You, You know this, you've heard this, but consider it again and take stock of your own soul, of your own practice, and of how God's transforming grace is at work in you. This transformation of life puts on display the the sound doctrine of God that brought about the transformation. And you need that validating reality to the message of the gospel. Not that the message of the gospel has no power absent of of a changed life. The gospel has power in and of itself. But God's intended design is to make us changed messengers of a powerful gospel. And we take that gospel that has changed us to people who also need rescued and changed. And our lives become a a living display of the very message we preach. Now, you know this in in other facets and areas of life. When you look for a dentist, you look for one who is missing no teeth, and they're all relatively straight and clean. You don't go to a dentist who doesn't have that. If you're looking for a nutrition specialist, you don't find one that is uh, obesely overweight and obviously unable to control their own eating habits. You wouldn't buy a car from a car salesman if when you went to buy this car that he told you all these great things about, you put the key in, turned it, and nothing happened. It did not start. You would not buy that car because the message and the reality did not match. On your farm, you would not trust a seed salesman who couldn't give you actual results of higher yields with his product. And neither should unbelievers trust a gospel witness whose life is not being transformed by the very gospel they proclaim and preach. Paul's been working his way through the different life situations represented in the church family. In chapter 2 in particular, he's been telling them how their lives should look in light of the sound doctrine they know and believe. Obviously, he's not saying everything that should be said, like, for instance, to the older men. He doesn't tell them every way their life should be transformed. What he does is he goes to the things that they would be most prone to to neglect or that would be the most problematic, the the areas they'll probably need to work on the most. And he goes on to the older women and to the younger women and to the younger men and, and then to Titus himself and says, you be an example in your teaching with dignity and respectability. And now he's going to come to a very unique class of people within the confines of the local church, that being slaves. We're going to start reading in verse 1. I'm going to jump down from verse 1 to verse 9 and read verses 9 and 10. Verse 1 of Titus 2 says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Then verse 9, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. 
our Savior. I want to make three simple, yet I think profound points. Nothing rocket science, earth-shattering for you, but they have a depth to them that I trust will encourage your soul tonight. The first is that sound doctrine transforms the lowest levels of society. The second is that sound doctrine transforms the lowest levels of lifestyle. And the third is that sound doctrine is adorned by sound living. So the first one is that sound doctrine transforms the lowest level of society. We see that right away in verse 9 where he's addressing bond servants. These are the lowest level slaves in the Roman Empire. These are the, the bottom of the bottom. And, and slavery was a massive deal in the Roman Empire. It was, it was really the stock of how their economy worked. Over 50%, it's estimated, of the people in the Roman Empire were in slavery of some sort. Some of those looked mostly like a normal employee-employer type relationship in today's economy. That's what a lot of it was. But then there were others that were just owned by their masters. They were bought and sold like cattle or sheep or any other commodity. And they were owned by their master. And that is what this word itself, doulos, is referring to, is one owned by another. They are owned by, they, they report to and have no authority over themselves. They are literally property of this master. And they are represented in the church in mass levels. I mean, we assume that to be true because as Paul writes to Titus, he addresses no other social situation. He addresses the home, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. He addresses the church, Titus himself, as a leader in the church, as a teacher in the church. But he doesn't address any other part of of societal structure. But he goes to the slave, and you have to ask why. Why does he do that? Why is this here? And I think there's a, a twofold reason. I think first is that likely there were many in the church who were slaves. And that really should be expected, right? Isn't that exactly what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 1 when he was writing to the church in Corinth. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's part of the economy of soteriology of God's saving work to choose the least and the lowest in society so that they become trophies of his great grace, so that they can never say, look how smart I was so as to come to Christ. So they can never say, look how rich I was so as to come to Christ or how influential I was. Instead, God chooses the weak to shame the strong. God chooses the poor to shame the rich. God chooses the foolish to shame the worldly wise so no human being might boast in the presence of God. So I think this is part of what we see represented in Paul's letter. He knows that many of the church people in Crete are in this situation. They're slaves and they need to know how to live a life according to sound doctrine. But beyond that, I think his second part of his logic to address slaves in this very short letter is because slaves are the lowest level of society. The societal structure bottoms out with these people. There's no one lower. There's no one with with less credence, no one with less reputation than these people. And so Paul is saying to the church, the gospel reaches to the lowest depths and transforms that life, changes that life, gives that life meaning 
and purpose. Gives that life direction and how to live in accord with sound doctrine. He calls them to see that the the gospel is not uh, just for the the mid-level society or the high-level society or, or almost all of society. No, it's for everyone in every rank. The gospel is powerful to save no matter your societal level. I think it's a proper then extrapolation to kind of bring that over into your own life. So that's true in society, true in the church. God can, by his gospel and by his power, rescue the, the least and the lowest. And, and then as he intends to do this in your life, he intends to transform every part of it. It's a, a permeating reality. Just as it is in society, reaching to the lowest depths, so too grace, saving grace and sanctifying grace in your life is intended to go to every part of you. It's not to be compartmentalized in, in some religious side of you or some, some public side of you or some relational side of you or communication side of you or whatever thing you want to bring grace in to help you with. God in his kindness and in his powerful work in your life intends for your attitudes and your thoughts and your actions and your emotions and your lifestyle patterns and even your everyday work life. Like how you talk about your boss. How you react to an authority figure when they tell you this is how it's going to be. Even that level of normal, common, everyday realities that we all deal with, the gospel reaches to that part and tells us how we should now live. The second truth from this text is that sound doctrine transforms the lowest level of lifestyle. It transforms the lowest level of society, and it also transforms the lowest level of lifestyle. And by lowest level, I don't mean morally low or practically low, but I mean commonly low. I mean the the basis of, of common experience. It reaches to, to the everyday stuff, the things you deal with day in and day out. So Titus is given by Paul clear instructions on how he is to train these slaves to live in accord with sound doctrine, to have lives that reflect the sound doctrine they've received from God through the apostle. Rather than just say this is about upfront obvious stuff, you know, go to church, witness to your neighbor, don't have a lot of debt. You know, whatever you want to say, the upfront kind of thing would be. Instead of that, he, he takes it to the most common level of life. Namely, how the slave works with his master. How he interacts in that relationship is a prime opportunity for the slave to magnify the glory of God and the truth and the doctrine of God. Notice that there's five ways that the slave is to to interact every day with his master in a way that displays a transformed life. First thing is he's supposed to be submissive. Paul says train them to submit to their own masters in everything. The word for master is the Greek word for despot. It doesn't mean what we've attached to it negatively, that they're a despotic leader necessarily. It just means they have full authority. They have complete control. They, they are the one in charge. He has authority over the slave. And so the slave is, is not instructed in this moment by Paul on how to change society to overthrow the system of slavery. He's not instructed on, on how it should be or, or how it should change and how they can be part of that change. Rather, the slave 
God is concerned to instruct a slave on how they should operate in a life that puts on display the doctrine of the gospel of God. That their life as a slave should make much of the truth and grace of God. And the first step in a life as a slave that does that is submission. Submission simply means to place yourself in rank. To put yourself under the person who has rightful authority over you. It's a, a common word. It's used in military contexts. It's used in, in other contexts like the home. It's used in the context of church leaders to church members. It's used in the context of masters to slaves. It means to fall into rank and to take up your position in the economy of relationship to authority. So Titus is to teach these slaves to willingly place themselves under the authority and the direction of their masters in everything. And we know from other clear texts of Scripture that in everything has a clear description in other texts of everything that pleases the Lord, right? So Colossians 3 would be a good example of that, that you're not to work as, as pleasers of men, but as pleasers of God, not, not for eye service of men, but to please God. Well, that's clearly what the in everything has as its bigger realm, in everything that pleases the Lord. So they can't, they can't submit to their master in a way that would go contrary to God. But anything that is in line with what God has said they should do and is clearly within the master's ability to tell them to do, they are to submit and do. They also are to be well-pleasing. So they're to be submissive and then well-pleasing. This is an interesting Greek word. It's it used in other New Testament texts that only speak about being well-pleasing to God. So this word is only ever used in other texts to speak of us being well-pleasing to God. Slave to master, right? So Hebrews 13, 16 as one example. The text says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing, that's our word, to God. And so inherent in the word is an idea of, of the lesser magnifying and pleasing the greater, of the subject pleasing the sovereign, of the slave delighting the master through their obedient service. So the slave's behavior in relation to his master is then a living display of his relationship to his ultimate master. Can we say that? Can we make that logical deduction? If he is to be well-pleasing to his master, and if that word itself is only ever used in our relationship to God and other texts, then isn't our relationship to our, our human authority figures a display of our relationship to our divine authority figure? Isn't how we interact with them, whether we're submissive and well-pleasing to them, isn't that a display of, of whether we're submissive and well-pleasing to God who is the authority over all? That's really how God's designed all of life to work, that all authority being delegated by God, it's, it's God's authority, all authority is God's authority. He's created a, a system in which he delegates that authority in the context of human society for the sake of order and for the sake of good. That's really important to say in our, our Marxist way of thinking anymore in, in our society, in which all authority is bad and all the systems need to be turned upside down and, and the rabble-rousers need to rule everything. God has designed systems for the sake of our good. And he has delegated authority to certain aspects and certain people within those systems for our good. 
for the good of those under that authority. That's really clear, like if you turn to Romans 13 and you just read how authority figures have been given the sword for our good. They're servants of the Lord for our good, the text says. So this is God's design in the master-slave relationship and how you relate to those who have authority over you. Kids, if that's your parents. Adults, if that's your, your workplace or teenagers, if that's your workplace and your boss at work. If that's within the church context, wherever that is, that God's given authority to someone over you in life. How you respond, how you react, how you interact is a display of really what you truly think about God's authority over you and where you're at in your relationship with him in that way. He also says they're not to be argumentative. It means to be respectful, not just in, in actions of obedience, but also in words and responses. You can obey outwardly with your actions while you, you disrespect with your words very easily. Paul says, tell these servants that that is not what they are to do. With their actions and with their words, they are to be respectful. They are not to be argumentative. It literally means to speak against, to speak words that counter the words of the master. This is so easy to do. You know this in the workplace when you're given a task and here's how it's going to go and here's what we're going to do. And in your mind starts the narrative of, but if, if we just did it this way or, or if, 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 and we start going our own path in our own way wanting to do our own thing, and pretty soon that comes out of our mouth, either to the person who has authority over us, whether our parent or our grandparent or our boss or whatever, whether to them in the room and we start countering them and arguing with them and we're argumentative about how this should go, or after they leave the room, we start cutting them down, whether to someone else or, or just talking to ourselves about them. We're speaking words contrary to our master, to our boss talking back to them or about them. Paul says, Titus, teach the slaves in the church family not to do that. That does not adorn the doctrine of God. Then he says, not pilfering. That means to take a little bit off the top. It's a strange word in the English, but it's really clearly uh, just taking a, a, siphoning off a little bit that no one will notice, especially not the master. This is the same word used in Acts 5 when the uh, writer Luke is describing Ananias and holding back a part of the offering of the house that, or the property they sold, holding back a part of it for himself, though acting like he had given it all. That's the same idea here, and it's so easy, I would think, wouldn't you, for slaves to do this in a master-slave context. They, they earn trust, they serve well, and then the, the master gives them responsibility over something, and they start taking advantage and as they take advantage, they either do that through taking a property or of money or of time that is part of, of not having been agreed upon between them and their master before. It's not part of their compensation. It's not part of the agreement of, hey, you work here, you can do that. This is just them taking advantage of their master because they say, you know what? I have worked so hard. I don't get respected enough. I don't get honored enough. I don't get thanked enough. I don't get paid enough. I deserve this. And he'll never know anyways. And they start siphoning off a little here and a little there, whether that's five minutes longer on the lunch break or whatever it is, time, money, property, siphoning some for ourselves and then besmirching the gospel of God. 
you can imagine as slaves that these last two things were really easy to do, right? If you're a slave, it's really easy to talk bad about your master or to your master and to take advantage of the, the things that you have access to, of their property or of their time that they expect you to be working. And so this is common practice among slaves. They're argumentative and they're pilfering. It's just kind of standard modus operandi for a slave in the Roman Empire to expect to do this. You're going to talk bad about your master and you're going to take advantage of him wherever you can because they're taking advantage of you wherever they can. And Paul says, listen, if you're a slave and you've been born again by the grace of God, your life is to be different. You are not to be those things. You're not to be argumentative. You're not to be pilfering. You are to be displaying the doctrine of God. This is really the lowest or the, the most common part of life. This is where your walk with the Lord meets reality in everyday experience. Where the rubber meets the road, so to say, of your Christianity. How sound doctrine gets fleshed out in your life. How you talk, particularly about those in authority over you, and how you treat what they've entrusted to you. And then they are to be faithful. They're to show themselves faithful, he says, but showing all good faith, it says in the ESV. It's a, a phrase you could translate as though he is displaying, the servant is displaying their faith through their good actions. Kind of a James 2 idea, that true saving faith produces good works. Or you could translate it as I think it should be, that, that the, the showing of good works is proving their faithfulness. And so the, the master realizes that they're a faithful servant unlike the other slaves because they're not pilfering and they're not argumentative and, and they are seeking to be well-pleasing and they are submissive. You think that would stand out in a master-slave context where other slaves are, are not born again? You think that might work out in a, in a work context where other employees are not born again? And you stand out because you are submissive you're seeking to be well-pleasing to your employer. You're not argumentative to those who have authority over you. And you're not pilfering of company time, money, or property. You will rise to the top in your boss's eyes, and they will see a difference in you, and they will count you to be faithful. You could think of a few Old Testament examples. The first one preeminently comes to mind is Joseph in Potiphar's house as he proved himself faithful and was given run of the place. Potiphar was so confident that he would be faithful, he gave him everything. And then Pharaoh, after him, did the exact same thing because he had proven himself faithful. So in God's good design, even the simplest and most common parts of life are to be impacted by and transformed by sound doctrine. So how you work, how you talk about your boss, how you use your time at work, how you respond to the authority of those in your life, your teacher, your parents, your boss at work, your spouse, your church leaders, all of that is to be constantly transformed by God's grace as you are taught sound doctrine. So a good rubric to test that for you, I think, would be to not consider yesterday, but to consider five years ago. Think back to yourself as an employee five years ago, as a Christian five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Have you made progress in these areas? Are, are you more faithful as a Christian, as an employee, as a son, as a daughter, as a student, 
as a church member? Are you, are you more well-pleasing to those who've been entrusted with your care and authority over you? Are, are you? are you more adorning of the doctrine of God? If true doctrine, sound doctrine is at work in you, it will produce this in you. So take a, a moment of taking stock of your own life. Evaluate your own exercise of your religion, as it were. Your own sound doctrine fleshed out in life. Third truth is sound doctrine is adorned by sound living. Sound doctrine is adorned by sound living. This healthy living described for the slaves in verses 9 through 10 is now said to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior at the end of verse 10. The word for adorn is cosmeo. I say that because you know the, the word it turns into is cosmetic. It means to put things in order so as to display beauty. It's what you do with when you want to display a, a beautiful diamond that you've given to your wife and you want her to be able to carry it around in a very obvious place on her body that would display your love for her. You put it in a ring setting that makes much of the diamond, makes it glisten and glow and beam for all to see. You've adorned the beauty of the diamond in the setting of the ring. This is what uh, the purpose of that, that setting is to make known the beauty of that sparkling diamond. This is the word that is used in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 6 to speak of Solomon, who adorned the temple, the house of the Lord, with, with many precious stones. It's the word used in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 to speak of women adorning themselves with respectable and modest apparel. To put attention on the right things, which is their godliness, not on the wrong things, which is their, their physical attractiveness. Jesus uses the word to condemn the scribes and the Pharisees in, in Matthew 23 to speak of how they had adorned the temples of the prophets to, to make them look nice as though they were feigning some affinity to the prophets. And Jesus says, you, you don't even believe the prophets you don't even obey the prophecies of the prophets because I am the fulfillment of their prophecies. So you've adorned their tombs as though you're in line with those prophets. And he says, it's a sham. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, he says. But you get the idea. They've made them beautiful so as to make much of the prophets. This is the, the adorning, the public display, the, the making much of something in our lives. So Titus is to train the slaves that their everyday work ethic is directly tied to what they believe to be true, and, and what they believe to be true is made known by how they live. And it's made much of or it's besmirched by how they live. This would be then a confirmation of their witness to the world. Notice that the sound doctrine is the doctrine of God our Savior. That's important. It's not, it's not doctrine we make up and then slap God's name on. It's doctrine that's been, been passed down to us, once for all delivered by the saints. It's the doctrine of, of God who has saved us and given us this precious body of truth that we now are to have lives shaped by. It says his ethical and just system of how we're to operate in our workplaces and, and in our communications with those closest to us. It's his ethics for how we're to, to use every minute of every day. You notice, it's interesting to me as you read through this, it, it's just assumed by Paul that even the Cretans, those who are always liars, lazy gluttons, and fools, that, that even they would understand that a slave who was pilfering was a problem. 
but a slave that was not being honest with his, his work ethic was a problem. E- even these people understood that because God has, has branded every one of our consciences with right and wrong. And he has imprinted his law upon our hearts. We know what should be right and what is indeed wrong. And so when we apply sound doctrine in every area of life, we amplify our witness because we witness to the world of that which is right, not just by our words, but by our conduct. And so we witness to their conscience through our behavior, listen, this is the way. That thing that's internal in you is now external to you in me. You're seeing lived out in me what God is saying to you, you need. And your life's a disastrous mess and and you have a hopeless reality that's going from one travesty to another created by your own sinfulness. My life is by far from perfect, but it is transformed by grace. And I model for you the very gospel I preach to you. That's the point of this text. This is now the third time that Paul's been concerned about the external witness of the church to the world. And it's fascinating, as in every part of the New Testament, there's nothing here about massive rallies or spending billions of dollars on, on massive media uh, expressions to, to win the masses with the gospel. God's program for winning the lost, finding lost sheep and bringing them back into his fold, his program for doing that is always personal witness. It is always in the context of, of one-to-one telling someone else the gospel message. Now, I know God has used mass media. I get it. You can tell me your story later. I understand. I'm not saying that he doesn't use it. I'm saying his program for it, every time he talks about it in scripture, is that we are his witnesses. And a big reason for that is because you, by your very life, are validation of the message. You can't have that in a mass media blitzing of the United States of America. We could buy up all the TV time for an hour and go on and express the gospel as clearly as we know how. And yes, it would have impact and might be a wonderful thing to do. But that in itself is absent of the very context in which God has given us to be witnesses, and that is our life. Which means then that those who are closest to you who are unbelievers are prime targets for the extension of this grace into their lives. Because as you're being transformed by that grace, you can now give explanation for that transformation. You can now tell them why your life is different than that other employee that they're having so much trouble with. Now, remove it from the context of you and just say, let me tell you of the glorious good news of Jesus. But they'll know, they'll see in you the difference that the gospel has made and this, by his, God's kindness, will draw them to himself. In verse 5, he was concerned, Paul was, that the younger women be self-controlled, pure, working at home, submissive to their husbands. Why? So that the word of God may not be reviled. So how you operate in the home, young women, Paul is saying, has direct impact on how the world understands and thinks about the reputation of the word in the world. Verse 8, he says to Titus, listen, you need to be a model of good works with integrity and dignity so that the world will have nothing evil to say, not just about Titus, but about us, the church, 
The church's reputation is on the line by how Titus lives. And now in verse 10, he goes to the lowest common denominator in all of society, the lowest level, the lowest commonalities of lived experience. And he says, listen, you slaves, even in how you talk to your bosses, to your masters, how you operate in the smallest ways, even there, you are to live transformed lives. Why? So that you adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in everything that you do. So all that to say, everything in your everyday life should be in accord with sound doctrine. It's easy for us to think of, of other parts of our lives as just, just parts of, of finding our own joy, our own happiness, and, and making it work. Our, our own success, or our own development, or, or our own ambition being accomplished through what we pursue in this area or that. But you must never lose sight of the fact that the very name of Christ which you carry with you is on the line in every one of those things. And and sound doctrine, God's body of truth that he's given to you in his word, has impact on every part of every aspect of life. Every minutia of every day is impacted by the truth of the word of God and the grace of God transforming you. So if we're going to carry the gospel to the world, as we heard this morning so helpfully from John 4, we must carry it in vessels which validate its truth. Because who wants to hear a message of saving grace from lives that are not evidencing that salvation and that power of Christ? May God help us. Let's pray together to that end. God in heaven, thank you for this text. Thank you for its impact upon our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us teaching us again and again and again how it is that we are to be transformed by your truth and your grace. We pray that you would mercifully move us along in this path of sanctification, that you would finish this work you've begun in us, that you would help us tomorrow in the everyday realities, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our school settings and situations, everything. Father, help us to adorn your doctrine to magnify its beauty by how we live out its truth. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. God's grace.